Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio, a regular check-in with apparel industry insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. Material production for clothing has a hefty environmental burden, which means that fashion brands and retailers can improve their environmental footprint by using more low-impact materials that don't rely heavily on fossil fuels and other non-renewables. Could synthetics, that is, man-made materials with organic origins, be the answer? I'm Jasmine Malik-Chua, sustainability reporter at Sourcing Journal. And today we'll be looking at whether materials such as synthetic spider silk derived from yeast, faux leathers made from pineapples or mushroom roots, and knitwear made from kelp are hype or hope for the fashion industry. I'm joined by Rebecca Burgess, Executive Director at Fibershed, a California-based nonprofit that creates regional and regenerative fiber systems on behalf of independent working producers. And Jason Kibbe, CEO of HIGCO, a technology company that delivers, implements, and supports the HIG Index for consumer goods industries. Thank you for being here, Rebecca and Jason. Rebecca, how important are raw material inputs in a garment's sustainability? Well, they make a a very significant impact on the overall life cycle assessment of a garment. How we how we farm, how we process are both, um, you know, would be a part of a material GHG or um, our chemical uh, budget. But if we're looking at the at the farm level, um, <clears throat> the inputs uh, in agriculture, um, regardless of what you're growing, there are in conventional agricultural systems, there's still a heavy reliance on synthetic inputs that are fossil carbon derived or require a significant amount of fossil carbon energy sources to, to create them. So synthetic nitrogen is an example it's used in conventional agriculture to increase yield. Uh, that yield could be for a cellulosic fiber. It could be um, for sugar cane, for a biosynthetic feedstock. The synthetic nitrogen can be used uh, in fields where they're producing forage uh, for livestock. So regardless of what kind of material we're looking at, the, the new fangled or the old fangled, <laughs> um, Agricultural systems still rely on uh, inputs, uh, herbicides and pesticides as well, also require fossil carbon to be refined and utilized to create these inputs. So um, in conventional systems, um, the agribusiness model, which when I say agribusiness, I mean the business of producing materials for farmers it's not farmers themselves necessarily that I would lump into the agribusiness model, but the actual surrounding industries that provide the input structure are, are inputs that require energy. At, um, and in some cases, like I said, for synthetic nitrogen, um, 
not only are you using so much fossil carbon to, to, to make that product, but then you have, uh, once in the field, you have a release of nitrous oxide from those systems that use synthetic nitrogen. And nitrous oxide is the number one greenhouse gas uh, emitted in California today um, due to the amount of synthetic nitrogen we're using in our irrigated croplands. So I'll stop there and I'll pass that to Jason who has another um, helpful and complimentary perspective on that, on that question. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, and you know, I'd like to just add to that, that often the raw materials phase of production for making a, a garment or making a, a pair of shoes is really the largest contributor to the environmental impact of that product. Uh, when you look across production from raw materials through to end of life, that raw materials usually are the largest contributor. And so any company that's trying to reduce its overall greenhouse gases or trying to reduce its uh, water usage or trying to improve its impact on biodiversity is going to start by looking at the impacts of raw materials and trying to see, are there different raw materials that they can use with a lower impact? Should they choose raw materials that were produced in a different manner, looking at you know, conventional cotton, organic cotton, or regenerative cotton? Can this actually change the impact? All of these are really key questions when a company is trying to reduce its impact and produce more sustainable products and be a more sustainable company. So Jason, we've seen a huge ramp up in recent years of innovative bioengineered fibers. To what can we attribute this huge rallying? Well, I think when, when you have these companies that are looking for different ways of, of reducing their impact, they're really starting to look in all different parts of the market. They're trying to see, are there new materials that they can use? Uh, and that maybe these new materials might be a solution when availability of natural materials fluctuates. Uh, we're, we're seeing certain places like India convert cotton crops to food crops. And so that can change the ability to actually uh, have availability of natural materials. And so if you're looking for low impact materials, maybe you do have to look to technology to help be a part of that solution. I think longer term, these companies are, are just looking at a, all of the above strategy for trying to reduce the impact of materials in their products. And some part of that is going to have to come from innovation. Some part of that is going to have to come from supporting upstream producers to use more sustainable methods. And some part of that is going to have to come from looking at circular materials and circular solutions where they're recycling the products that are being used today and turning them back into new products in the future. Great. Rebecca, did you have anything to you wanted to add? Oh, that, was, that was a great answer. Um, I do see that there's a need being driven much by the consumer to, um, to have brands address the footprint so that people can, can, wear, can wear in a way that feels in alignment with their values. And we've seen these values perpetuated um, in the way we purchase food and the consciousness we're bringing into um, our support or not support of certain items from the food system. And those values are translating out of the refrigerator and the closet and the grocery store and into, um, or the cupboard and the refrigerator and the grocery store. They're, those values of those, where those items are held in the household, the, the values of food system thinking are being applied to the closet and to what we put on our skin. And so it makes sense to me that brands would be searching for ways to meet uh, a, an emerging and exciting demand for materials that do less harm or maybe even 
uh, regenerate the systems from which they are grown. Um, so I think that there's a, a, a need to, to honor the desire. I also think that um, it's the, the kind of existential threat of climate change, you know, with the IPCC telling you you have 10 years to, um, to reduce emissions by half and you have to be as a globe carbon neutral by 2050 and you have fashion looking to make reductions between, I don't know, 30, 40% by, by 2030. Um, y- there's an urgency to the challenge and it's not just coming from consumers. It's coming from a literal existential threat to our species and all species that we are impacting with our material culture. And so my kind of, my thinking around this is that in a state of urgency, we have opportunities and we can play out those opportunities um, by using the best informed science and information that we have at our fingertips. Um, But I'm also seeing that our science and some of our approach to science can sometimes leave us with some holes in the system. There's often um, a hole in science that leaves out social justice concerns um, it leaves out some of the inherent knowledge of indigenous farming wisdom. Um, so I think in this this search to meet and answer and solve an existential threat, we need we need to come together um, with multiple pillars to our sustainability framework. And so I would urge and support um, a framework that's even broader than maybe just the peer-reviewed science, which I rely on heavily. I mean, we are peer-reviewed science org, but um, I'm realizing there's a lot of things that um, our fashion system, due to its you know fairly colonial and exploitative roots, has kind of leapt over some solutions. We've kind of not seen them. And they're nested within traditional practices. So it takes a bit of an unearthing process to discover or rediscover things that we thought like, oh, conventional cotton, yeah, problematic. But all these other ways of growing cotton are actually um, at our fingertips if we choose to um, incorporate uh, more historic ways of growing the crop. So um, yeah, I I guess I'll stop there. (laughs) Great question. I could go on forever about it. (laughs) So, Jason, we know that these novels certainly have plenty of gloss and sex appeal. Are these materials, in your opinion, gimmicky, or are there social and environmental issues they can address? That's a great question. So I would say, in general, the the data that we've seen is still very early uh, to actually look to say, are are these materials uh, reducing the impact significantly? Think they have a lot of promise, uh, but we we are not yet at, at the point where many of the newest materials are included in the Hig Material Sustainability Index, where we can actually weigh them with their life cycle impacts against others. Uh, our hope is is that you know, there will be some materials that actually show measurable uh, improvements in in lowering carbon intensity of the material or lowering the water intensity. And I think we have to invest in continued innovation. And we also have to be okay with the fact that probably some of these materials uh, in their first iterations may not be actually a whole lot better. They may have to improve those processes in making those materials over time to make them far more efficient and lower impact. Um, but I, I would say we're at the very earliest phase of this and few of the 
new, interesting, exciting materials have come to scale. Uh, and few of them have sort of that, that longer term data set that can allow us to really judge them uh, completely on, on what their impacts actually are today and what they're gonna be tomorrow. Uh, that that is still very early i i think it's also far too soon to count them out uh there are, are a lot of industry interests that um that are very much interested in in sort of squashing new materials because it's a form of competition and i think that's a mistake as well i i remember when i owned a sustainable apparel company packed apparel uh, that we loved our organic cotton and we had a beautiful tight supply chain and it was fantastic and then suddenly, all of a sudden, the price of organic cotton just dramatically spiked so that we couldn't even, not only could we barely get the supply that we wanted, uh, but we couldn't afford it and make, make any sort of profit on our products. And so we had to substitute it with another material. And I think that that is what we're going to have to look for in the future is, is that as the world change changes, I think we're going to have to look to everything from supporting and regenerative agriculture and uh, sometimes older methods of production that may be far more sustainable. Sometimes they may be newer methods of production that are far more sustainable. But we also have to support innovation and try to find these new materials that do reduce impact and do reduce, uh, allow us to give optionality in a changing world. We don't know, uh, given how fast the climate is changing, I don't think we know what regions of the world are going to be even suitable for cotton production in 20 to 40 years uh, and what that looks like. Uh, and you could say the same thing with, with wool and others. So I think we're going into a, a very unknown future and we're going into a future where we have to use data to understand what the lowest impact of every material that we use is to clothe ourselves and clothe the planet. And how do we also clothe uh, the, the next 5 million people uh, that maybe don't have the luxury of buying high-end materials. Uh, how do we clothe them using the, the lowest impact materials in the future? I think all that is going to require innovation. It's going to require research and development. And mainly, it's going to require an accurate way to measure those materials and know that they actually are more sustainable. Great. Yeah, Rebecca, I know that Fibershed has appealed for caution when it comes to commercial scale production of biosynthetics especially if they involve genetically engineered organisms. What are some of the issues we need to take into consideration when promoting their use? Well, there was a, uh, in the U.S. context, um, a review by the Woodrow Wilson International Center um, about synthetic biology and its, its growth in the U.S. economy. And they concluded that um, the current regulatory system, from our environmental standards in particular, are completely, in quotes, ill-suited <laughs> to address all the regulatory implications of new products derived from synthetic biology. So we have a fundamental safety issue in that we don't have a way of assessing impact with the waste stream of biosynthetics. So uh, you have claims that all of the E. coli um, that's been engineered or yeast that's been engineered, those are the two main bioengines of the synthetic biology fermentation workforce, that those engineered recombinant or CRISPR-9 uh, gene edited microbial life forms have been desiccated or they're, they're killed off before re-released into the biosphere. But when we see what um, Serona production um, in the United States under DuPont's watch, they are still um, 
currently unable to understand the impact of releasing those desiccated materials. So you can't use that water in agriculture currently. They'd like to, but currently you're producing in these fermentation tanks, these biofilms, without the ability to responsibly dispose of those materials or in a circular economic framework, you can't circulate those materials back out into systems. They can't get into the estuaries. They can't get into the marine ecosystems. They can't get into the riparian corridors. Um, There's limitations because we don't understand impact because gene transfer is rapid at that scale of life form. And so there's just things we don't know. And I think without precaution, we risk doing to ourselves what we did with DDT. Um, DDT is still has a 500 year half-life. It's in every single stream and riparian corridor in the United States. It is a breast cancer generator. It is problematic on every level. It's what Rachel Carson, you know, wrote Silent Spring about. Silent Spring is created by DDT, no sounds in the ecosystem because they've all been killed off by an insecticide. So I think what we have is a history of launching things into our biosphere without having measurement frameworks or scientific analysis about potential impacts to dynamic ecosystem function. So I have concerns and I'm not the only one. Jason, did you want to add anything to that? No, I, I think it is, you know, it's, it's a delicate balance because you, uh, you want to make sure that we can create materials that reduce our carbon impact, uh, that reduce our water usage, uh, but you also have to be careful of the unintended consequences. I think you know, there are many fantastic sort of things uh, from a circular perspective that you can do with, say, recycled polyester, uh, but you also have negative impacts that are at this point still not well understood and not well measured with regards to microfiber shedding. And I think it's it's very careful or it's very um, uh, important that we we both have to support innovation and support uh, new ways to look at uh, clothing, essentially all the inhabitants of the world that reduce our impact. But we also have to be very careful of the unintended consequences of, of those materials as we develop them and understand them and uh, and carefully try to understand and reduce those negative, un- uh, reduce or ideally eliminate those unintended consequences. Right. So we know that agriculture and factory farming are far from perfect, but a growing number of brands are embracing something called regenerative agriculture. So this is a Rebecca question. What does the concept entail and what does it mean for the fashion supply chain? Well, I think the term regenerative is still, in many cases, being interpreted in in multiple ways. Uh, There's people trying to uh, create certifications around it. There's groups trying to um, define it in in their own terms. So I think it's still an open terrain to even use the term regenerative and to actually know what that, in fact, entails or means. But I can speak to it from what it entails and means for our work which is that uh, we've, I'm the chair of the board of the Carbon Cycle Institute, and I also work with scientists who focus on biogeochemistry and their analysis of soil carbon has been really eye-opening to me and very interesting for me to learn about how we can track carbon moving from the atmosphere through plant life into glucose, sucrose, moving underground through root systems, feeding microbial life, getting lodged in the occluded layer, 
like literally the ability to map, measure, and model carbon transfer from atmosphere to biosphere to soil carbon pool, which is the petosphere carbon pool, is now available to us. I mean, one of the great advents of our technology and our science is our ability to measure. I'm much more interested in science that measures versus science that manipulates. And so I have regenerative agriculture to me is how do you model and understand or how do you measure and understand the movement of carbon into that soil carbon pool? Because carbon is your currency, really, in the in the farming system. Carbon feeds everything and it comes from the atmosphere. So plant life is grabbing CO2, it's breaking the CO2 molecule, it's releasing oxygen for you to breathe, and it's taking that carbon and moving it through uh, its own physical structure to create the cotton stock, to create the forage for the wool-producing sheep, but it's also lodging that carbon underground to feed microbial and fungal communities. And we call that the liquid carbon pathway. And to me, regenerative agriculture is to harness those natural aspects of how carbon moves through the carbon pools and to harmonize with that movement. And we call it enhancing photosynthetic capture of carbon. To me, that's what regenerative agriculture is very hinged on, is how do you enhance the amount of photosynthesis occurring in a field? And that can happen through cover cropping, that can happen through hedgerows, it can happen through silvopastures, putting trees back in pastures where animals graze. There's 35 practices that we've modeled uh, to understand their carbon impact. And we can model based on the GPS coordinates of where we put the trees or where we put the compost application. And we can come up with a greenhouse gas signature for how much carbon we can draw down out of the atmosphere and into the soil just by knowing the GPS coordinates and the size of the project. So there's a great amount of science that's helping us model regenerative agriculture. And again, regeneration is this ability to self-renew without using synthetic inputs, just using the carbon in the atmosphere to enhance natural fertility levels. And once you hit a certain inflection point in the system, I've experienced this with soil, after there's enough literal carbon in that system, when you raise those carbon levels up, which is basically you've sequestered atmospheric carbon in the petosphere, the whole system changes. You start seeing plants you never saw before. The pH conditions change. You start expressing different biochemical qualities in the soil. Weed suppression you can do naturally. Um, you don't need pesticide and herbicide. You can start bringing in the beneficial insects naturally. It's this under general systems theory, which is kind of what I think about when I think of an ecosystem. Once you have a state change in the soil, you have this ascending spiral of benefit that occurs and the human doesn't even need to manage every inch of that system. The system is self-organizing. And it's because this is biology. It's the magic of biology. And so many humans are used to dealing with mechanical systems. We forget the power of biology. And we haven't really unleashed that power in its full extent in our working lands. We've been managing our working lands with a lot of chemical inputs and a lot of machinery. But I think it's time to kind of reevaluate those management systems and think about carbon as a new organizing principle and as a new way to define the term regenerative. Wonderful. So, Jason, which direction should a fashion brand that wants to be more sustainable head in? Novel biomaterials or regenerative natural fibers? 
Or door number three, does the industry and consumers just need to learn to consume less? Well, I, I, I would actually potentially add a fourth choice. I think in general, uh, we need to understand the impacts of all of our materials and choose better lower impact materials for every product that we make. For certain small companies that maybe uh, have customers that are just looking for natural fibers, regenerative agriculture-based products, whether they be made out of cotton or potentially out of wool, that, that might be a solution and that might be fantastic for, for that company. Uh, most companies that we work with are, are essentially working with a very large portfolio of many different materials. And in general, there is no magic bullet, whether it be uh, the challenge you know, I think we're soon going to have with regenerative agriculture that Rebecca mentioned. There's not yet a definition uh, that can be used to really um, measure it and scale it uh, so that you can understand what, what are the impacts of your material usage. Uh, and so it's not, it's not a perfect solution. It's probably a great solution within a portfolio of many. But again, most companies that are working with many dozens, if not hundreds of materials now to make different kinds of products that consumers are looking for and that are ultimately going to buy, they're gonna to need to know the impact of every, every product that they make and the, material, the impact of every material that they use. And for that, I think they're going to seek to have better data that will allow them to make better choices. And we also will really need a rich variety of different different low impact materials to choose from. And so I'm a believer that we need to, of course, support regenerative agriculture, but do so in a way that we can actually get data from that so that we can understand its impacts, uh, which I think Rebecca's talked about is starting to come, come together. Uh, and we also need to support new materials uh, as we're trying to clothe you know, the next five to 10 billion people that come onto the planet. Uh, regenerative material is or agriculture is not likely to be the only solution and we're going to have to look to many but for all of these solutions i think we need to figure out first how do we reduce the intensity of every material that we make and that we use so that it uses less carbon uh, and ideally it would be wonderful if it actually took carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and that it uses less water uh, and uh, and improves and potentially uses less chemistry uh, and then finally, yes, I think there, there is some, some accuracy to saying, well, consumption is part of the problem. Uh, there's no way to avoid that that is there. But I think what we find is, is that markets right now continue to demand a lot of products. And to just say we're all going to buy less, I don't think that that is looking at sort of the reality of where the world is today. The, the, uh, and so we need to ideally, yes, can uh, educate consumers and uh, potentially change mindsets to make longer lasting products that don't need to be bought so often. But we also need to figure out how to make every single product that is bought and sold uh, for the foreseeable future have a lower impact. And that's going to require good data on a wide variety of materials so that you can make better decisions to lower your impact. Great. Um, Rebecca, anything you'd like to add as well? Question of uh, scaling agriculture that is you know, sequestering atmospheric carbon into the soil is actually a matter of policy. It's less to me an issue of can we produce um, X, Y, and Z yield of these natural materials at the scale of current consumption. I would say we can actually, I've seen already the evidence that we can increase yields using natural forms of fertility in on an acre of land at least in the cellulose 
um, systems so for cotton and hemp and flax and rami and nettle. But I, I have seen that the, the issues hindering, I think we need to be very surgical about. It's not an issue of these landscapes cannot be transformed. The issue is the political and economic system that is not allowing farmers to make transitions because they are literally being, at least in the United States, provided taxpayer dollars to do quite the opposite of what we would need them to do. They're being incentivized to till landscapes. They're being incentivized to grow certain commodity crops um, for particularly like ethanol production. Uh, we are actually losing a lot of our ability to regenerate landscapes and even rewild some of the ag landscapes because I don't think we need actually as much land in production if we were to use a regenerative ag model. The yields, can't, like I say, can go up through natural fertility methods. I've seen it. I'm watching it happen. I'm watching it happen in conventional corn systems in New Mexico. Um, there's there's projects being funded by the Buffett Foundation right now through um, the Center for Regenerative Ag and Resilient Systems in California, and they are testing all the commodity crops and pulling synthetic nitrogen out and just using free microbial-rich compost inoculant and inoculating seeds before they go in the ground and seeing incredible yield increases. Um, I think it's a matter of policy. So I think brands actually have an interesting role to play here to support farmers to make transitions, not only by providing transition dollars, um, which could through, come through corporate social responsibility arms or a larger brand's philanthropic foundation. You can help farmers make transitions. We're seeing that happen right now with guest genes helping farmers transition in the San Joaquin Valley in California through their philanthropic arm. The North Face has done it through their through their CSR. Um, but then once you hit a state change in those systems, farmers become able to produce and yield the kinds of materials you need. And the price points, I think, just have to be, I think it's a thoughtful negotiation that we just haven't even had the time to really, in my opinion, have a broader discussion around price point. Um, and I think a lot of that price point could come down with a change to the farm bill in the United States. So I think brands have a really incredible role to play in developing um, a lobbying arm to change how the USDA subsidizes agriculture. If you want regenerative organic cotton beans, I think you could get them not for $300. I think you could probably get them for 75 to 100 But that's actually the, the difference in price is actually the policies underpinning agriculture in the U.S. So I think scale is, is really there. I just think we are looking at we're particular we're not particularly looking at the right tools to surgically change the system. So I think we need to reevaluate our approach. Yeah. So just to my final question, what else do we need to be talking about in the sustainable fiber space? Maybe let's start with Jason and then Rebecca. Well, I, I think one one question that is, is on the minds of many companies right now is circularity and trying to understand um, really two dimensions of circularity. And, and the first part is often forgotten is uh, how how long do these fibers last and uh, and what is the lifespan of the fiber and, and when you actually turn it into a final product, uh, how long is that product going to last? I think that's that's a, often a key determinant of sustainability impact that's that's forgotten. It's something that 
uh, in our, our next iteration of our product assessment lifecycle tool, the, the HIG product module, we're, we're including as well because it's really key to look at the whole holistic garment and understand uh, that longevity. Uh, and secondarily is, is circularity overall and how, how can you uh, recycle that, that product and turn it back into uh, something similar again that can be used, used again and again when it's reached the end of its uh, useful life. So I think those are those are really important parts of the conversation that I think is where a lot of the conversation is going uh, in the future as we're starting to first understand and measure and reduce the impacts of the raw materials. Now we have to look at how do we reduce the impacts of the products uh, and um, and how do we actually get rid of this idea of impact from the, the products themselves by regenerating them and recirculating them into into something again. Um, the, the role of moving molecules through circular systems and repurposing a cotton molecule has a, has a really important role um, within the system. I think if you know some of the models we look at is if we do want to transition conventional agriculture, helping farmers upfront, you know, getting some increased value for their material and as Jason's saying, you know, what will the market bear and how can my profit margins sustain under the transitions needing to occur? I think that to me, I, I think cotton farming continues and ideally it continues where farmers are making um, a more consistent living from their their crop, but maybe we can bring consistently the prices down if we are potentially scaling some of the circular elements which allow us to repurpose cotton. Um, right now I think the mechanical shredding processes are allowing people to repurpose the cotton fiber by still adding virgin material and content. So there's this, you know, at least in mechanical recycling of cotton, we still see the need for the virgin cotton. And I would hope that the future continues to allow us to innovate in the ag space and allows farmers to continue to grow this amazing crop. I mean, Gossypium barbadens and Gossypium hirsutum, which are, you know, the upland and the sea island cottons, these are species that have been with humanity for millennia. And it would be sad to me to see that we just throw out the whole concept of ag because it's been poorly done in recent years and we throw out all this genetic diversity that we've been honing, again, through communities across the world for millennia, I would love to see us have kind of a renaissance of new ancient cotton varieties coming back and being alley cropped and being grown regeneratively. But I do think, to Jason's point, to hit the price points, um, you know, using materials that we can scale that help, you know, complement the price of maybe a more expensive natural fiber in the future under climate change duress. Um, I still think the farm bill is going to bring our prices way down. But I still, again, I also see the plight of the farmer really needing to make a living um, and a good living for all the hard work they put into it. So I see circularity as this complement to regenerative ag. I think they could work really well together to get us to our effective price points. I think potentially they get us there under a climate uncertain future. So I like the idea of repurposing. Um, I still have questions about chemical processing. I know that in Finland, I think it's the um, the process maybe that H&M has been working on to recycle the cotton molecule in a very clean way, um, chemically. <laughs> but I do have questions about you know scaling some of those chemical recycling processes and 
um, I'm sure Jason and your work, you'll, you'll be mapping and modeling the impacts of scaling chemical recycling, but I know the Biomimicry Institute is coming out with a paper by the Lods Foundation, and they're discussing the leakages that circularity places on biological systems, meaning we have to be careful as we scale circularity because it could have impacts to biology. In fact, it inevitably will. So how do you really tighten every loop as best you can, but acknowledge that circularity still is going to leak and where is it leaking? Um, so anyway, I, 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 I like all these ideas and I just think we have, I, th- I hope we can continue to leave the conversations open for discussion in future because the, the future is so emergent right now. I think that's the exciting part is we're, we're here to define what the next um, the next decade's going to look like. I have a feeling it'll look quite different from the one we just have been living in. Yeah, what a wonderful discussion. Thank you both for joining us today. To hear more conversations like this, visit sourcingjournal.com and click podcast. Also, join us for the 2020 Virtual Sourcing Summit, October 14th and 15th. Secure your ticket by visiting our site and clicking the Sourcing Summit link. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.